G'day, this is Mark Pesci, and welcome to episode 14 of Series 7 of This Week in Startups Australia. Scaling is the hardest task facing a startup entrepreneur. It's harder than getting started. It's harder than getting to an MVP. It's harder than getting investment. Scaling is hard. But there are any number of startups who have scaled successfully, including a few that have already been on Twista, such as Canva, Envato, Catapult, and Airtasker. What can we learn from their successes in scaling? That's our theme for Series 7. Now, in this episode, we'll learn what it takes to scale a bank, a neobank, from the ground up. So we're getting cashed up on this episode of This Week in Startups Australia. This Week in Startups Australia is sponsored by the University of Technology, Sydney, driving the next generation of entrepreneurs. UTS is equipping a new breed of startup founders by inspiring students to launch their own venture and build the foundation for a successful career. To find out more about entrepreneurship at UTS and the UTS Startups Program, go to startups.uts.edu.au. This Week in Startups Australia is also sponsored by .co, the domain name for innovators, entrepreneurs, startups, and creators growing extraordinary ideas online. Your brand wasn't built to blend in, so don't let it. Get a .co domain that's as unique and memorable as your one-of-a-kind idea. Find your.co today at go.co slash twista and take advantage of freebies, tools, and resources to get your idea off the ground. That's go.co slash twista. And This Week in Startups Australia is sponsored by Pitney Bowes. Are you a small business looking to streamline costs on shipping and postage? Simplify and save with SendPro Plus from Pitney Bowes and receive a $200 credit toward your parcel shipping costs. Terms and conditions apply. Visit them online at pitneybows.com slash au slash twista. Australia has been blessed with the most stable banking system in the world. And a generation ago, the nation's leadership made the considered decision to foster an oligopoly of the big four. That's Combank, Westpac, ANZ, and NAB. And by and large, that's worked out well. When the rest of the global banking system basically imploded in 2008, Australia's banks never needed a bailout. And although they are not the largest banks in the world, they are among the most profitable in the world. And that's made them seem almost like a part of the nation's geography. And like a feature of the landscape, the banks will not be moved. Apple Pay came in and was resisted. PayID and the new payments platform, sponsored by the Reserve Bank, that came in too, and it's been given the slow walk by the big four. The big four banks want innovation on their own terms. Meanwhile, the world is changing. Beyond Australia, fintech is transforming banking. China has the most sophisticated payments infrastructure in the world. The UK has open banking. And digital currencies like Facebook's Libra seem poised to pull the rug out from underneath the entire money economy. 
So it may not be the best of all times to be resisting change, which is another way of saying it may be a great time to be a disruptive innovator in fintech, and in particular, in Australian banking. We're just now seeing the emergence of a whole new banking sector as the so-called neobanks take a different attitude toward innovation and take on the big four. With us on this episode of This Week in Startups Australia are Rob Bell and Anthony Thompson, or AT as he likes to be called, respectively the CEO and chairman of 86400, the first of Australia's neobanks to receive a full financial services license from the regulator. That's a singular achievement that they mark, may very well mark the beginning of a new era of banking in Australia, startup banking. Welcome, Rob. Welcome, Anthony. Thank you. Thanks very much. So let's start off with what is 86400? Well, 86400 is Australia's newest bank, as you say, Mark, and its first smart bank. So what do I mean by smart bank? Well, our experience and our research tell us that people are living smarter lives. They drive smarter cars. They've got take food out their smart fridge. They use their smartphone. And we've designed a bank to be delivered for those smarter lives, to be delivered on that smartphone. Well, so what does that mean then? If you're talking about a smartphone-centered bank, is that a specific set of services or is it a user experience or is it...? It's a combination of things. So it is a bank that was designed and built for use on mobile devices. So rather than the way the uh, existing big banks have done, they've taken traditional high street banking, then squeezed that into telephone banking, then squeezed that into desktop internet banking, then tried to squeeze that into mobile banking. We have designed the whole thing from the get-go to deliver a better experience on the mobile phone. But the experience is just the tip of the iceberg. The reason we can deliver a better customer experience is because of the efficiency of the bit that sits between the system of record, the ledger, and the app. And we call that the customer experience engine. And it does two things. Because we've built this incredibly efficient engine, it has a lower cost to us of running than a big bank system would be. So our cost of inc- cost income ratio is much lower, mm-hmm. which means we can provide better products, better priced products on either side of the balance sheet to customers. And it also means we can de- deliver a better experience at the glass to our customers. So I mean, you're talking about what other bankers would call their core banking. So what you're saying is your core banking systems, which in the case of a larger bank tend to be legacy, often are written in an archaic computer language known as COBOL because they, they work and they're unwilling or unable to tamper with systems that work. So those legacy systems are there. They cost a lot of money to support and maintain that because you've come in and started with an entirely new sheet of paper, that your cost structure in terms of an organization is different. So does that then mean that when you scale as a bank, so ComBank has, what, forty or 50,000 employees, Westpac has 40,000, that you can scale without requiring the same kinds of infrastructure, Rob? Yeah, absolutely. We've designed the bank from the start using the most modern architecture uh, available, and we can certainly scale without having to put on the multiples of people uh, that you see in other banks. And we've been very, very clear about what we want to do. So, for example, our account opening process takes two minutes. It's done via the mobile app. There's no ringing a call centre. There's no going to internet banking. There's no having to go into a branch. And your card is ordered. Uh, You have a real-time card presented to you in the app. 
Um, you don't actually have to wait for the physical card. So a digital card. So digital you can card, use Apple absolutely. Pay or Google Pay or you whatever. You can use Apple Pay straight away. You know, within three minutes, you can be using Apple Pay. We will send you one in the mail, of course. People like to have that bit of plastic as well. Um, but that whole process, there is no human involved. Uh, it is all done. It is all automated. And so it's very, very scalable. And it's also a fantastic customer experience. So if we have this idea that there's an entirely new way to do banking, do we have a sense that banking, which has always been thought of as stolid, but stolid because it's dependable, because it's safe, because it's secure, that in fact the customers are hungry for innovation and will still keep the same sense of security around that? I think there is an underlying generic question of which what you said is a manifestation. And the generic question is this, in whose interest is banking? Right. And I think the great malaise I saw in the UK and the great malaise I see here in Australia is that the big banks have lost sight of the customer. They think that they are in business to make money. Now, obviously businesses need to make money. The people who work in them need to be rewarded. You need money to invest in the growth of your business. You need money capital for... Uh, to secure against your assets. But for me, profit is a byproduct of doing something well for the customer. Of a successful customer relationship. The right. purpose of the business is to give the customer a better product or a better service or a better experience. And if you manage your business well, you will be profitable. Mm. And that's the approach that we've taken. And I think the difference is m many of the big banks across the world have lost sight of the customer. And we are absolutely passionate about putting the customer front and center of everything that we do. You can also take a look, though, banks have different kinds of customers. Like all of the big four have institutional arms, so they're dealing with really, really big businesses that they're doing business with, and then SMEs, and then just punters. So is 86400 focusing on one of those segments? Well, look, we're, we're blessed in that there's so many opportunities in front of us and the challenge for us is actually to really focus on the things that we can do really, really well on day one and then build out from there. Uh, for us, that's retail banking in the first instance. We're really focused on retail banking. We will expand uh, as we go along, but day one is retail banking. We have live today a fully functional transaction account and a savings account that are live and we'll be launching with home loans very shortly. Um, but what we do in terms of those products is quite different. And you touched on before that, you know, banking hasn't really changed much. And when you think about it, banking has always been about giving you a system of record, about looking backwards. You had a written re record of your, uh, your balances. Then you got a statement in the mail. Then you've got to see the same record just in slightly better colours uh, on the screen in internet banking. And then maybe your bank presented that to you in a, in a banking app. But it's always been about looking backwards. We think that banking, using the right technology, should also be about looking forwards. Mm. We should be able to use data to help customers actually look forwards, not just backwards. Right. And I mean, just in my own personal experience, I just did a data collection cycle for myself so I could understand my spending. So I recorded absolutely every single purchase that I made over three months. You know, and so I just, every time I'd open up the smartphone and make another entry in my, my, my Google Sheets so that I was doing this. And there should have been, I'm thinking as I'm doing this, why is this not happening automatically? Why do I have to sort of struggle with this? And it's around that data gathering that would then, then allow me to be able to look forward and to plan. Yeah, it's a really good question. Why should you do that? Why, why is not someone not doing something useful with your data? Mm. 
Uh, and that's exactly how we've tackled it. So for 86400, one of the things we do is we actually forecast your next 60, uh, 30, 60 and 90 day bills. We actually look at your 12 months history of data and we look for patterns. We've got very smart algorithms and we will tell you that your Netflix bill is due in 10 days. It's going to be $17.95. Your Foxtel bill is due. Um, we'll remind you that that gym bill, you've been still paying it for six months, even though you stopped going four months ago. <laughs> All right. When does this cross the line when the bank starts to know a little bit too much about me? I mean, I guess there's... There's all of that, that the bank is supposed to be an intimate partner in my financial success. And I think, A.T., to your point, this is one of the things that the banks have lost sight of, right? That they see the, the retail customer as the cash cow rather than the, the, the end point of who they're trying to enrich. So where do we draw the line in this new generation of banking around that? Uh, a point that Rob's made uh, so eloquently previously is that banks seem to think that the customer data belongs to the bank. We believe that the customer data belongs to you, the customer. So there is a huge amount we can do for you with your data, with your permission. But the really critical thing there is with your permission. Mm. So if you give us your permission, we will continue to give you more and more useful insights. If at any point you felt that that was intrusive or we were getting to know stuff that you didn't feel comfortable about, you can stop it at that particular point. All right, let's make this very concrete for people who may be listening and are going, okay, so this is a new bank. It says that it has lower running costs. Does that translate for the retail customers to, say, a better interest rate on their savings account or a lower interest rate on their mortgage? Is that really what we're talking about in terms of a, a very sort of bottom line approach? Well, certainly AN6400's offering will be very competitive. You know, competitive interest rates on mortgages, competitive interest rates on savings products. But we actually need to look beyond just rates to see where we can help customers. You know, for example, uh, as I mentioned before, you know, maybe highlighting to you future bills that you perhaps don't need to pay, mm. you can probably save more money there yeah. than you know, 20 basis points extra on your savings account. So there are lots of ways we can add value. Another way we're tackling this is uh, through our savings product ourselves. So that many banks have these savings accounts in the marketplace where they have a fantastic headline rate that looks, looks wonderful. And then when you read the fine print, you've got to stand on your left foot, bounce up and down, scratch your right ear, turn around three times, make X number of payments and meet all these weird and wonderful conditions to get that bonus interest rate. It's actually designed so no one or very few people ever actually achieve it. We think that's not helping a customer. That's trying to catch them out, not help them out. So with our savings product, yes, there is some criteria. We ask you to put some money into the account each month. But what we'll do through our insights engine is we'll actually remind you. Right. Hey, AT, you, you need to put $200 more into your account this month if you'd like to earn bonus interest. So we actually help people maximise their potential. So it's more than just an interest rate. It's actually helping people uh, get ahead to do the right thing, helping well, them to save. There's a bigger issue here, which, which Rob's just touched upon, which is this whole question of consumers and their trust in banks. Mm. So you say to a bank, big bank, do your customers trust you? And they go, yeah, of course they do. And you go to a research group or you go to a consumer association or you go to a journalist and say, do your readers trust the banks? And they go, no, they don't. And you go, well, how can this be true? Who, who is right and who is wrong? Well, the answer is that they're actually both correct because uh, academics tell us there are two types of trust. There is what's called cognitive trust, which is about competence. 
an associative trust, which is about intent. Mm. So cognitive trust is, do I trust you, my big bank, that... To do the sums right. If I pay my salary in on the third Thursday of the month, it'll still be there on the Friday. Yes, I do. Do I trust you to pay my mortgage every month? Yes, I do. Do I trust you that if I go to an ATM to draw out $200, my card will work? Yeah, largely speaking, yes, I do. Do I tr- Associative trust is about intention. Do I trust you, my big bank, to have my best interest at heart? And the answer is, no, I bloody don't. No, and after the Royal Commission, there's a substantial body of evidence to back up that trust gap. So for us, the question is demonstrating through some of the things that Rob's just talked about, how we do put you first, that we don't put our interest first, that we literally put your interest first by saying, pay in another 40 bucks this month and you'll get your interest. So the secret sauce to 86400 is closing the gap between cognitive and associative trust. I've never described it like that, but I think I might be from today onwards. And on that note, we'll be right back. You're listening to This Week in Startups Australia. A strong online presence is non-negotiable in today's market. Whether it's your primary location for sales and trade or you just want to have some key information online so people can discover your business. Your website is the core of your online brand. When it comes to choosing a domain name for your website, there are now countless options of domain extensions to choose from. But if you're looking for a domain that is short, SEO-friendly, global, and truly supports your business, go with .co. .co is the domain name for innovators, entrepreneurs, startups, and creators growing their extraordinary ideas online. With more names available than any other legacy namespace, .co is for everyone who is hustling hard and building something awesome. With freebies, resources, and tools for startups available even to those without a .co domain, check out www.go.co slash twista today and find the perfect .co domain for your big idea. .co where big ideas belong on the web. And we're back. We're talking to Anthony Thompson, AT, and Rob Bell, who are the respectively chairman and CEO of 86400. Okay, so AT... This is your third neobank. You started two in the UK before you came here. What did you learn? What have you learned from each neobank as you've gone along? Well, just before I answer that, can I pick up on your use of neobank? Mm. Because I don't, I, I'm not from a ed, good education. I'm not quite sure what neo means in Latin. New. Thank you. Literally new. Yeah, I, I pretty much had yeah. got to that. But it's got a, for me, another bank. Australia doesn't need another bank. Another bank doing the same thing is not going to work. And in the same in the UK, nobody needs another new bank in the UK. So what we tried to do in Metro Bank and what we tried to do in Atom Bank and what Rob and I are trying to do here in Australia with 86400 is create a bank that solves a specific customer problem. The, the first customer problem we solved 
it looked to solve in the UK was what did customers want? And you know, but this is back in 2007 when I had the idea for, for what became Metro Bank, uh, which is a branch-based bank. And the, the problem was this. The banks seemed to think that the only thing that mattered to customers was price. So how cheap could I make my loan? How high could I make my savings rate? So assuming that the customer is the rational economic actor, the perfect economic man, right, in that exactly. sense. But of course, then what the banks did was gave you what looked like a great rate on your savings and then worked it down and gave you what looked like a great rate on your borrowings and then added fees and all sorts of other things in. And what the, the data told us then and the data tell us today is what matters to customers is value. And value is an amalgam of a number of different things. So yes, price is important, but only 17% of people in the UK choose their bank because of price. For others, it's about service, it's about convenience, it's about transparency, it's about consistency. I, as a customer, hate it when a new customer gets a better deal than me, with a telecom or anybody. I go, this is not fair. I've been your loyal customer. How come you're giving new customers a better deal? So Metrobank was all about giving customers that value, opening long hours, great service, great convenience, and never treating a new customer better than you treat an existing customer. Uh, move forward to 2012, 2013, I saw the most seismic shift in consumer behavior I'd ever seen from traditional banking to digital banking in general and to mobile banking in particular. And the question there was, how can you give people a better experience of their banking, all of the things that they expect, through a mobile device? And that was what underpinned um, Atom Bank. And here, with 86400, the, the customer problem we are attempting to solve is, again, data-driven that everybody feels they're struggling to be on top of their money. Mm. In the old days, you used to get your salary, your thousand bucks in cash. If you spent 10 bucks, you knew you had 990 left. Today, your money goes in digitally. Payments are going out automatically. You're tapping and going. You have no idea how much money you've got in your account. People feel confused. They feel uncomfortable. And it doesn't matter whether you're rich or you're poor. You still have this same feelings of stress about, I'm not in control of my money. Mm. And 86400 is about using big data, data analytics, artificial intelligence, every second of every minute of every day to look at your money so you don't need to. And in terms of the difference between the two banks in the UK and, and here in Australia, uh, demographically, there's no difference in the markets. Right. Very, very similar in terms of breakdown by age. Obviously, a smaller market here. Um, mobile phone penetration, slightly higher here. Fixed line usage, slightly lower here. So all the signs um, are very, very good. Same legislative framework, same regulatory environment. So there's nothing that I've seen in Australia that would suggest to me that giving people a better product, a better service, a better experience in banking will not be as successful as Metro and Atom were in the UK. So I guess the, the other side of that coin is that the difference between the UK and Australia is that Australia has the big four, 
which are, if not so much enshrined by law, they're enshrined by factor of policy. So, Rob, what makes sense? I mean, I'm, I'm asking this as an entrepreneur talking to an entrepreneur. If you're going into an extremely established market with effectively not quite a regulatory oligopoly, but everything but that, how do you have confidence as an entrepreneur that you're going to be able to gain foothold and traction in that kind of market? You know, it's a really good question. And we've obviously spent a lot of time on how we actually attract customers and, and what sort of customers are going to join us. We think that the, you know, that the data says that people are actually willing to try someone, but they want to try someone who's different. It's, it's really hard. They to, don't want the same old thing if they're going to try yeah, it's, something. It's, it's really hard to convince someone to move from bank A to bank B to bank C to bank D to bank A when they're all effectively the same. And so we do need to provide something really different, which we've been working really hard on, you know, a different experience. And I've, you know, I've mentioned some of the things that will be different about us. So is this, does this go to the heart of why customer churn between the big four is so, so low? Because it is low. I don't, I, mean, it's, I don't know if it's lower than it is in the UK, but it's certainly very low. And is it because people just don't feel like if they go somewhere, they're going to get a, a different deal? Well, the data, is, the data is a little bit misleading because people don't close their bank accounts anymore. They do open new bank accounts ah. at, new, at new banks. So people are actually moving a little bit more than what the, the initial look at the glance at the data says. In actual fact, more than 50% of Australians have a relationship with two banks now. Um, so that's, that's an interesting fact. The other thing is it's quite difficult. It's quite difficult to open a bank account, even in Australia. Almost anything else is easier to do than opening a bank account. And so we've built that into our process. We've made it very, very easy to open a bank account. You download the app, under two minutes, you've signed up, you have an account, you can provision Apple Pay, you can tap your phone, you're away. There's no barriers and it's really simple. People actually, you know, interesting stats on this, people actually you know, make online purchases and do these things uh, at strange hours and a lot of the hours is actually in their commute time. Yeah. Um, and so the average commute time for a, a bus station, for example, is about six minutes. Mm -hmm. uh, and so we've made sure that you can open an account <laughs> during your commute. While you're waiting for a bus. While you're waiting for a bus, while you're waiting for a train, you can open your account. In fact, uh, yesterday, um, uh, one of my friends contacted me and they'd opened their account in a meeting. I'm not suggesting that's the right to do that, but they were quietly able to do it in a it's meeting. It's probably a boring meeting, so it's okay. It, that right. quickly. But I think if I may just yeah. add, add to that point, just to be really clear on this, you're absolutely right. The absolute percentage of people who switch banks, i.e. close account A to open account B, is very small. That's not our challenge. Our challenge is really straightforward, to get you to open and try an 86400 account. Because we are confident that once you try it, not only will you get a better experience of banking through our app, you'll get a better experience of your existing banks through our app. And we're confident that then over time, you will simply move more and more of your transactions to us and we become your main account. So, I mean, in some sense, it's deceptively simple. If you lower the barrier enough for people to be able to sign up for an account, well, of course, more people are going to sign up for accounts because they don't have to go down there. You know, the 100 points of our idea, because I've used these systems, are done online, so it's all done very sort of transparently and very quickly. So you can be compliant and yet at the same time still present a good user experience. All right, that's one half. That's, that, that's the public-facing half. 
There's another half here, which is that you have a banking license, which is no, by no means an easy thing to get. What was that process like? I think all of our listeners are really interested. What is the process and how, how detailed, how intense is that process to actually get a full-fledged banking license? Look, as you'd expect, it's a very, very detailed and, and quite a long process to go through. How long was it from your, you filing to receiving the licence? Uh, it was just over 18 months. Okay, yeah. So what you've got to understand is there actually hasn't been many new banks in Australia. And there's been very, very few. In fact, for a long time, there's been less and less banks. Uh, a lot of the small building societies and credit unions have been merging. And so there's been less and less financial institutions. It's only been recently that there actually has been applicants for new banks. So it's a process that uh, you need to work through with the regulator. You need to work very, very closely with the regulator. Uh, in terms of a regulator, you know, they obviously have a very legitimate case to make sure that we are financially sound, yes. we have all the risk processes in place, and that we can do all the things uh, that we should be able to do to make sure our customers' money is not at risk. Right. And that you're also not money laundering and financing terrorism and God knows what else. Yeah. So it's a, it's a thorough process. Uh, to go through, and it does take time, it takes a lot of resources, it takes a lot of capital, mm. but it comes with responsibility. And I think you know, Australians should actually take comfort that they're, you know, if someone has a full banking licence, they have gone through a very, very thorough process and they can be confident they can put their money in uh, with that bank. So does that, I mean, since you're talking about it being an intensive process, that is effectively probably the largest barrier to market entry for anyone else who's going to be doing a new bank. Then, no, right? I think it is part of the, the challenge, but only one part of it. And indeed, uh, what uh, they've done here in Australia is what we did in the UK some time ago, which was try and simplify and shorten the process. Mm -hmm. and, and I believe, too, that actually getting uh, to a license earlier would lead to more competition because having a license would make it easier to raise capital because banks, by their nature, are very capital consumptive. But in fact, uh, what my experience in the UK taught me and, and what our experience here in Australia has taught us is that doesn't actually make a huge difference because from the provider of capital standpoint, they go, what difference does a banking license make? Uh, you can't sell it. You can't represent it on your balance sheet. It has no value. It has no value to a prospective investor. What matters to a prospective investor is your operational readiness and capability. And the idea was, well, if we give people a banking license earlier, they'll be able to raise the money to build out that infrastructure. Uh, and all of the evidence suggests that that's not the case. Now, we were very fortunate because we had in our parent, Cuscal, a 100% shareholder who provided all of our funding and many, many other resources behind us, which did two things. One, it enabled Rob and his great team to focus their entire efforts on building the bank, building the right bank, not being distracted by having to look for five million here and, and 10 million there. And I've done that, and believe me, it is a great distraction. Uh, and where we are now is we have a fully operational, fully functional bank. And at some time towards the end of this year, we'll be looking to introduce other shareholders because uh, as an ADI, we can't be owned 100% by one, one person. Cascal will have to dilute down uh, over a period of time. But that raising capital 
ahead of your operational readiness is very, very difficult. And we're in the great position, as, as Rob's already said. The bank is built. It's operational. We've got 80 people have been using our transaction account for the last six months in 11 countries. It's now live in the App Store. Uh, friends and family are opening real accounts as we speak. Over the course of the next couple of months, we'll be opening that up to our 10,000-plus uh, waiting list. And then a few weeks later, it'll be open to the general public. So, yeah, so it's the alpha test, beta test, general release, which is, we don't think of banks that way, and yet the, this is presumably the way we're going to start to think about banks. So, Rob, you've now, and I, I want to point out this may be the only time in my career where I've talked to a chairperson of a bank and a CEO of a bank, and you're both not even dressed quite as well as I am, and I didn't particularly dress up for this. I have shoes on. I'm not wearing runners. Well, if, if I may take issue with that, we may not be dressed as formal as you are, but I'd like to think we're dressed as I'm well so, as I'm you so, are. I'm yeah. sorry. This, is not, this was not an assessment of your sartorial skills, but rather that I am used to having people in suits when we're having these conversations. And this is, does not seem to be a suit environment. In fact, this is much more startup-y environment. Rob, when you're building a team, how do you bridge that gap, both, I think, in terms of the team psychology, but also in terms of where you're drawing your talent from? Because clearly you want talent from both worlds here. You want talent from the series banking world, which is quite formal, and then talent from startup land, which is much less formal. Absolutely. Can I, can I answer the, the dress code question sure. first? So, uh, that, was really, not, that was not a critique, by the way. There was was, a really, there's a really good stat I read on this uh, recently. I think it actually came from a comedian, but I can't remember who. But um, it, it's actually science has shown it's actually possible to measure the exact distance between you and complete happiness. You just need to take all the neckties out of your cupboard and line them up from end to end. And the distance between the end point and you is the distance between you and complete happiness. We've got some pretty happy people here in the office. <laughs> I have a lot of neckties. I just want to point that out. <laughs> Look, in terms of you know, who have we recruited here? So we have a team of 80 people. Uh, about half our team are engineers, developers. We're very, very strong on technical capabilities. But you can't start a bank without the banking experience. Correct. And so what we look for in terms of bankers is bankers who are digitally native, mm. who are at least passionate about technology. And so we've got a really good balance between engineers who've come from a, you know, various backgrounds and bankers, but it, it, we don't have any bankers who are not passionate about technology, uh, who are not using the tools we use to run the business. We don't run, we run the business like a fintech and you know, use all the tools you'd expect to use. Everyone uses them. The biggest challenge around people is that there are many, many experienced bankers in the marketplace looking to join a fintech. They'd love to do it. But there aren't many experienced bankers who've had to roll their sleeves up and actually do a lot of hands-on work. Uh, they've been very good at managing people or managing boards or you know, managing very large teams, whereas all of my team have skills and are able to actually get on and, and build things and do things. So you're breeding a new kind of banker here as well then, a new kind of sort of fintech banker. Well, I think just to, to build upon uh, the point that Rob, the very good point that Rob's just made, you know, having been around this particular block a couple of times now, uh, my experience tells me that there are people who are really good at the building of banks. They thrive in that uh, fast-moving, fast-paced environment, making decisions with limited data sets uh, in an informal and often unstructured environment. Uh, whereas people from a more traditional banking 
background, particularly in compliance and, and risk areas, are used to working in a very formal and stratified atmosphere and often feel quite uncomfortable in that um, startup environment. I think what Rob's done incredibly well is attract and build a team of people who can exist in the, the form of the build the startup stage, but who have the abilities and skills to, to transform through into the, what I'd call a more BAU, stratified, structured stage that banks need to go into. Right, because banks, particularly a neobank, is going to have to have a foot in both worlds. You're listening to This Week in Startups Australia. We'll be right back. Are you a small business or small e-tailer looking for better ways to streamline costs and improve efficiency? Introducing SendPro Plus from Pitney Bowes, the complete office sending solution that makes it easy for small businesses and e-tailers to consistently choose the right sending option for each parcel or letter. SendPro Plus provides shipping options and prices, prints labels, and tracks parcels. An integrated accurate scale helps assign the correct parcel label or postage. SendPro Plus makes sending simple with automatic rate updates and a shared address book across available carriers. Pitney Bowes brings shipping, mailing, and tracking capabilities to businesses looking to simplify their shipping and mailing while reducing costs. Simplify and save with SendPro Plus today and receive a $200 credit toward your parcel shipping costs. Terms and conditions apply. To learn more, visit pitneybows.com slash au slash twista. And we're back talking to Rob and AT from 86400. So 86400 is, you got the name from... It's the number of seconds in a day. And for someone who runs a podcast called The Next Billion Seconds, which is, by the way, 31 years, seven months, and four days, just in case you were wondering, I should have known this, and someone had to tell me this the other day, and I was like, oh, I like the name. I like that. Okay. Here's what I see going on. I see us moving into a two-speed banking system in Australia, where you have the big four that are so big, so process-bound, so profitable that it's difficult for them not only to conceive of change, but to actually even to execute the change, even if they could conceive of it. And then you have all of the neobanks. And, you know, A.T., listening to you, I almost, I like the term, but I also don't want it to be a term that's derision. Oh, that's just a neobank, right? I don't want people to put to use it to brush things aside. But the neobanks are innovating rapidly. They're introducing all sorts of different things. The neobanks are the ones that are taking up new technologies such as NPP. And, you know, we had uh, Adrian from NPP on quite early because we knew that that was going to be a big area. And I was expecting it to be a lot more transformative to the nation's financial system than it has been because the big four aren't innovating. And they don't want to innovate because it touches payments, which is one of the core ways they make money. But you guys 
bound to that. So we really are seeing the emergence now of a two-speed financial system. What does that mean for the future of finance in Australia and for the future stability of the banking system as a whole, which is something that actually we should be looking toward? It's, it's great that you used the word dilemma there, because what you've just described is the central tenet of Clayton Christian's book, The Innovator's Dilemma. And the dilemma that the big banks have is that they are so profitable that it's very, very difficult for them to justify investing in less profitable distribution mechanisms in banking. Because everybody's going, guys, you're making so much money out of this. Why would you deliberately reduce your own NIM? Yeah. And the answer is, we're going to do that yeah. because we can create the efficient platform to do that. And again, if you follow uh, Clayton's uh, central thesis, the, the big companies that fail to recognize this and fail to innovate by producing lower cost, lower revenue, lower margin versions of their own business are, are uh, compelled to fail. And we've seen it in so many other industries. So I think it is really a case of adapt or die. But to your second point about the effect on the um, prudential uh, landscape, that is governed by a very strong regulator. Mm. They are not going to allow us to do anything that weakens that prudential framework. So we have to hold as much capital, or, or often with startups, more capital than, than the larger incumbents. And that's just part of the price of the ticket of taking part in the game. As we grow, as we become larger, we become more efficient. And because we're more efficient, we retain more, we will become more stable. And it's, you know, it's the, the nature of destructive capitalism. So, uh, I, but I guess the point here is not that you're going to produce the instability in the system, but in fact that the big four, by not innovating, are actually producing the instability in the system. So does APRA then turn to them and demand that they up their games because the model that you're presenting is so commanding, in other words, is producing this creative destruction in, in the ecosystem. And this is, this is what I sort of see as the future, is that in some sense, whether it's 86400 or another neobank, but the the march is inevitable because the banks aren't innovating. So how do we, how do we have a successful transition, I guess, is the question, which is a macroeconomic question well, as much as anything else. It's not going to happen overnight. No. You know, the, the, these guys have tens of millions of customers, huge profit. And tens of billions of dollars. And hu huge back books. Yeah. Um, it, it's going to take time. But, yeah. We didn't come here to build a small bank. Rob and I aren't here to build a small bank. We think there is a huge opportunity amongst the over 8 million Australians who do live most of their lives and most of their banking on mobile devices to give them a better experience. Because the, the big banks tend to talk in terms of quarterly profits. Mm. The things that concern Rob and I are really just two things. It's about customer satisfaction and about customer advocacy. If we can get the highest levels of customer satisfaction, we'll get the highest levels of customer advocacy, and all of the other numbers fall out of that. 
All right, Rob, I'm going to ask you the closing question. What's your biggest, because a bank is, is, we have to be serious here. What's your biggest execution risk as you grow into the marketplace? What do you have to be the most worried about? It's a really good question because a lot of people ask me about, are you, Rob, are you concerned about there being two or three uh, new banks in the marketplace? Does that worry you? And, and my answer is I actually don't worry about there being two or three successful new banks in the market. I actually think it would be fantastic for competition in Australia. It would be fantastic for consumers to have multiple competition in Australian banking, all doing slightly different things and, and delivering better outcomes. Probably my biggest concern would be that uh, a bank got a new licence and then didn't get to launch or, or wasn't successful because that could actually have a negative impact on the overall market. So, so someone, so, someone starts basically a shonky neobank. Or someone someone just doesn't get to market or or they get to market and they have to give back their licence. That that would be a concern to me. Mm. Uh, I'd much rather that, that uh, the banks be uh, successful because you don't want the market going, oh, yeah, that's not safe. Now, I think we're lucky in Australia that we do have a very, very thorough regulator uh, and I think they will they'll watch that very carefully. Um, but that would, be, that would be one. The second would be in terms of execution, you know, the challenge for us is, you know, there are so many things we can do. Um, there are so many opportunities that we've identified and the challenge for us in execution is is picking the right ones, the, the little features that will delight and getting those right and not trying to do too much on the first day. And when you're a fintech and when you've got so much capability and there are so many opportunities in the market, there's that temptation to do too much too quickly. And that's where we've been really good to date and we'll continue to be really good around, you know, being prioritising what we're going to execute first. Rob, Anthony, thank you very much for joining us on This Week in Startups Australia. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you very much. Good, good to talk to you. Developing entrepreneurial skills is at the heart of the student experience at the University of Technology, Sydney. UTS students are creating their own jobs and starting their own companies through the flagship program, UTS Startups. Within its first year, the program has launched more than 200 student startups, and they're just getting started. Equipping students with the tools and expertise to become entrepreneurs, then connecting them to industry partners and the startup ecosystem is all part of their innovative approach. UTS is connecting thousands of talented students to industry and works closely with a network of partners to match students and startups through their startup internship program. As a leading university of technology and Australia's number one young university, UTS is investing heavily in this future right now. UTS's inner city campus is also uniquely positioned in Sydney's thriving tech precinct to be the catalyst for digital and creative industries and the startup community. Join them on the journey building Australia's largest community of student entrepreneurs. Go to startups.uts.edu.au to find out more.
In our last episode, Sydney University's Incubate founder, James Alexander, talked about his time in the computer science program at that uni and how he felt they were trying to turn the computer scientists there into bankers. Now, for Rob and AT of 86400, they're trying to turn bankers into engineers. And it may just be that the unis need to turn their thinking inside out and see finance not as an end to itself, but as a means to an end, something that helps you do stuff rather than the stuff that you mean to do. And that might help the big four find their way out of this innovator's dilemma. Big thanks to Twista sponsors Pitney Bowes, UTS Startups, and .co. Their support makes our podcast possible. Thanks to the studio at Winard Green for providing the amazing facility where we record this week in Startups Australia. It's the place for creative tech. Find out more at thestudio.org.au. Thanks to Rob Bell and Anthony Thompson for taking the time to come onto our show. Now, last year, we rebuilt and relaunched our website at twistartupsaus.com. It's got everything. It's got all the shows, all the interviews, all the photos, and all the links to all the stories. So check it out at twistartupsaus.com. We'll be back next week with another great story from the heart of Australia's startup community. Until then, this is Mark Pesci thanking you for listening to This Week in Startups Australia. 